0: Welcome to Innovation, a place where I discuss the world of business, innovation, technology, and beyond, with a rotating crew of industry experts and mainstays. Enjoy. We are taping this on a Friday, August 4th. Um, I'm using uh, this week and the following week to focus on academia and um, civic engagement, community engagement, um, things of that sort. It's something that we have not covered in Nation before and, um, and it's really a high value topic. And it's because of that, that we have a very special guest with us today. Um, this individual uh, works um, at alma Mater, the University of Miami. Could you please introduce yourself?
1: Yes. Hi, this is Robin Backen, uh the Assistant Provost for Civic and Community Engagement at the University of Miami.
0: So Robin, uh, how's the weather down there?
1: It's a hot and steamy day here in sunny South Florida.
0: <laughs> I heard that there's a, a heat warning.
1: There has been a heat warning, but um, actually, it's not quite as hot as some other places in the country, like Portland, Oregon. So,
0: yeah, and and th- and those folks are in trouble because the majority of them don't have AC.
1: Exactly, they
0: they don't. At least in South Florida, it's South Florida is a funny place because people, if somebody's walking on the sidewalk, they're looked at. In a really weird way, it's like what are what are you doing walking in public? That's right.
1: Your car must have broken down. Can I help you? Your car must have
0: broken down, or you are just completely broke, right? Uh, So what's wrong with you? You know, why are you walking as opposed to DC, where I am, where you know the norm is kind of like to walk or to use your bike. Uh, or to run red lights with your bike, like I, I saw three people do today. But <laughs> well, we're
1: moving towards that goal. We do have uh, you know, an emphasis on trying to make Miami more pedestrian and bike-friendly.
0: Yeah, Miami is an incredible city for those that have, have never visited. Um, it's actually um, the, I think, uh, one or two in terms of of the most active in the um, technology startup scene in the United States, it's um, it's a great city with uh, you know really terrific quality of life if you compare it to other large scale you know three four five million plus. Uh, um, Cities with a you know with that type of population, and uh, it's really really great. It's my hometown. So, but with that said, you know I wanted to talk to you about something that's that's really interesting. Um, your mission at the University of Miami. Um, what? Let's talk about it. What What is the mission of the uh, Office of Civic and Community Engagement at UAM?
1: Yeah. So our mission is really to leverage the academic resources of the university. To help promote deeper partnerships between the campus and the community around community identified needs, because we recognize that universities, as anchor institutions, have tremendous resources that they can bring to bear on addressing pressing issues in our communities, you know, through faculty expertise, through all of the kinds of uh, centers for innovation and technology that we have access to. We really wanna think strategically and intentionally about how we can utilize those resources to work in collaboration with community.
0: So two two follow-up questions. Um, Why did you create this Office of Civic and Community Engagement? And second is how long have you been around?
1: Sure, so um, we founded the office in 2011. And uh, the reason we created the office is um, that while Miami has a lot of wonderful qualities, it's obviously a very cosmopolitan city, a very dynamic city with a mix of cultures and languages. Um, One of the downsides to that is it's a very transient city. Mm -hmm. So there's not a real deep sense of connection to place that you have in many older cities like Boston or New York or Chicago And so one of the results of that is that Miami consistently ranks very low in terms of civic engagement. So in studies of like the 50 top major metropolitan regions in the country, Miami consistently ranks last in civic engagement. So whether you define that as um, philanthropic activity, voting, uh, attending public meetings, working with your neighbors to fix a problem, you know, these are all indicators of civic health, Miami ranks extremely low, as does the state of Florida. Um, So again, we're in this space where there's not a whole lot of engagement. And within the state of Florida, the millennial generation is the least engaged generation in one of the least engaged states. So there's really this sense that, you know, we as an institution that caters to millennials that bring students here from all over the country and all over the world, we really wanna foster a sense of what it means to be a civically engaged citizen, to understand the ways in which the knowledge that you are building, the skills that you're learning have an impact on your community. And you should understand how to use use them in a way that looks to the public purpose of your knowledge and skills.
0: So, you know, having lived in Miami for, um, several decades. I, I completely agree with what you just said. There's It's an interesting phenomenon in Miami and then some other similar cities where, um, when things are okay, everybody is very disconnected from, from kind of like the civic engagement movement. But when something catastrophic, catastrophic happens, like, like a hurricane or, or something, you know, some act of God, the community comes together like, like no other place, uh, but it's very rare um that's very rare and there are many years in between so so when it, it it really troubles me to hear that that even you know this millennial generation which is very much engaged in social media but not sure if they're engaged in anything else is is that disengaged from the process
1: Right. And I um, wasn't here at the time of Hurricane Andrew in 1992. But, Mm -hmm. you know, people who talk about the impact of that disaster talk about the ways in which people came together in dramatic Mm -hmm. fashion Mm -hmm. out of necessity and I think today, you know, sea level rise is another issue. It's obviously not an immediate catastrophe, um, but there are little examples of how climate change and sea level rise are impacting South Florida. And obviously, South Florida is ground zero for thinking about the impacts of sea level rise on cities. And so, you know, there are mechanisms by which people are engaging this issue, but we really want to introduce students at the university and, you know, more broadly throughout Miami-Dade County to the important role that each individual can play in making a difference in their communities.
0: So when when we talk about civic engagement i mean and you you've you've talked a little bit about this but you know let's let's do a deeper dive why do you feel that it's that important for a university like you um to promote civic engagement in such a in such a powerful manner
1: Sure. So if you think about um, the history of higher education, you know, over the last century, there's really been a democratization of higher ed. Um, Universities are more accessible to more people now than ever, um, especially at the community college level. Um, But when we look back to the dramatic expansion of universities at the turn of the last century, there was really this emphasis on the civic mission of higher education. So for example, the philosopher and educator John Dewey said Mm -hmm. famously, um, education is not preparation for life, education is life itself. And so for him, you know knowledge didn't just reside in the ivory tower of the university he believed in a really dramatic connection between knowledge and democracy so he really wanted to emphasize how knowledge only happens through the process of working with community in an interconnected way right like the the social yep. foundation of knowledge so this is why he was the Um, founder of the concept of laboratory schools, right? If you want to learn botany, you go plant a garden, and that's how you learn um, about plant structure. Uh, So that concept that, you know, higher education should be deeply and intimately connected with its surrounding community, uh, and with lots of people coming to the table with different kinds of expertise, not just university-trained expertise, was really the foundation of his vision both for higher education and also for creating um, a really engaged citizenry. So in more recent years, um, educators have really looked back to that idea and tried to re-examine the public mission and social responsibility of higher education to become much more active participants in helping to foster dynamic and engaged communities.
0: So let's talk about the students in relation to civic and community engagement and why it's so critical for them to to take part and and you know also if you could provide some insight into you know when can, when should they start doing it you know what's what's the the earliest possible point or you know what are some observations about actual engagement in relation to students and and some positive outcomes
1: Sure. So um, at most uh, public school systems and in private schools across the country, there is a a requirement before students graduate high school that they need to do a certain number of community service hours. And so, um, you know, students are already used to doing that. They're used to this notion that they should be part of a community. They should understand what the broad needs of their community are and think strategically on their own about what difference they can make. Um, and in institutions of higher learning, we've had centers for volunteerism and leadership for quite a long time. Um, at the University of Miami, we have the very robust Butler Center for Service and Leadership that coordinates students' volunteerism and co-curricular activities. So they sponsor, you know, Gandhi Day of Service and Alternative Breaks and lots of partnerships for students to volunteer within the community. But what my office does is really links the academic side with the civic engagement. And and so that is really where we think, okay, how is what our faculty are researching and teaching? um, How can that help students understand how to translate what they learn in the classroom into real world problem solving skills? And so we know from research that you know it's 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 pretty self-evident, right? When you actually have to apply the knowledge that you learn, it enhances student learning. Right. So you could learn about um, you know, some of the problems facing the Everglades, let's say, if you're taking in a class on sustainability. But then if you are actually doing work in your class working on Everglades restoration, um, then you really have a first-hand knowledge about what it takes. In order to be successful and have an impact on the issue that you're trying to address. And so right. that's really the goal with civic engagement at the university level. On the one hand, it's, you know, let's enhance student learning in the most effective way possible. And that is enable students to see the practical application of their knowledge and skills that they're developing in the real world. Um, we also know that participating in civic engagement activities through, for example, service learning courses or um, community-based research projects helps students foster professional development because they're making contacts in the community. So in much the same way that an internship serves that function, um, doing community-based learning also serves that function. Um, The other thing is, you know, typically in in college, students feel that they're accountable to themselves, Mm -hmm. uh, to their parents and to their professor. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And they might do a term paper and they turn it in. The professor gives them a grade and then they throw it away. And and that's the end of it. Um, (laughs) But when you're doing community based work, you know, In those kinds of classes, you have a deliverable that a community organization is counting on to help them build their capacity, right? So this also helps build self-efficacy um, within the students, because now they're being held, held accountable to a real organization that has real needs out in the community. And if they procrastinate, or they don't put their hardest effort into the work, people are going to be deeply impacted. You know, it's not just that your professor is disappointed in you, or your parents are upset that you've wasted their tuition dollars, right? There's a There's a real impact of your work. And so students in their evaluation of community-based learning courses have said that this really actually makes them feel empowered uh, because they feel like they're really making a difference with the work that they do in their courses.
0: And what are some concrete examples of of this type of work, at at least from from students at the university?
1: Sure. So um, since we started the office in 2011, we've really worked to embed community-based learning and civic engagement into all aspects of the university. So Um, We have 11 schools and colleges at the University of Miami. So, you know, everything from medical school, law school, marine science, business, uh, College of Arts and Sciences, music. So it's a very diverse institution for, you know, a relatively small private university. Um, But within every aspect of the university, every school and college, we have uh, courses that have community-based learning. So right now we have about 600 courses with a community-based learning component. So, for example, at the music school, Mm -hmm. um, students could be learning violin, but then they also work directly with youth after-school programs to teach students violin, right? So, again, students are learning how, you know, they might be in the Frost Music School, which is a very prestigious music school, but they're also deeply impacting their community. Um, I'll give you another example, Um, we have a faculty member who teaches a course on immigrant literature Mm -hmm. uh, and this is a French class and so um, sometimes they're reading in French, sometimes they're reading in English, uh, but they also worked in collaboration with a Haitian-American organization to promote literacy and also bring Haitian literature to the Haitian community. Um, and so there are some students who speak Creole at UM, they help with translations. Uh, so again, it's, it's how do we take the sort of what might be considered esoteric Knowledge that we 're building within the university, and understand how it has a public purpose, and what that public purpose purpose looks like um, if you 're taking public health courses uh, again, you kind of understand from the literature issues about. Um, health disparities and various social indicators of health, but then doing a public health fair out in the community where you know you 're promoting knowledge about how to do smoking cessation or awareness about depression, obesity, and anxiety in certain populations again that 's showing you the direct impact of your knowledge on helping different members of your community
0: that 's fascinating that 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 really really is so Um, what other initiatives has your office, um, developed since 2011?
1: Sure. So in addition to, you know, working with faculty and students to just embed civic engagement more deeply in the curriculum, um, working with faculty to kind of train them in the pedagogy of community-based learning. We also have a number of initiatives that our office has started that are directly related, to some of the most pressing issues in Miami. Um, and so, one of the most significant issues facing Miami, in addition to sea level rise, is affordable housing. Um, so, many people aren't aware that Miami actually has the highest cost burden for housing of any major metropolitan area in the country. And, you know, people are often surprised by that. They say, well, you know, Miami's not as expensive as New York or San Francisco. And that is absolutely true. But our wages are so much lower than wages in those cities that that creates this cost burden where basically the wages that people make on average aren't enough for them to keep up with the continuous rise in rental housing. And, you know, much of that is driven by the fact that we're a cosmopolitan city. There are a lot of people from all over the world who are interested in living here or having second homes here or investment property. But that has a dramatic impact on real yeah. estate here yeah. in South Florida. It do, so it, do,
0: it does. And, and for example, uh, you know, one example, as you mentioned, the, the foreign investment, right? You have individuals that don't really don't live in Miami, right. or, or are seasonal visitors, right? And they purchase a, a property in Miami, be it on the Brickell area and Coral Gables, Coconut Grove, yeah, Pinecrest, and and they pay a, a a high price, and then the comps price. All all around them. And then that that in turn makes it very difficult for the locals that, you know, to to afford something there. And and you're absolutely right. The wages are not comparable to to New York, D.C., San Francisco, L.A., where, where we're simply earning more we just are. And fair or unfair, we just, we are. And, you know, one issue here in DC, for example, is, yeah, everything's extremely expensive. You know, housing is more expensive than Miami, but, but there's it's kind of like a Disney world where, you know, there's not a bad day because, there's constant employment for the most part from the federal government so that right. the and, and the federal government pays well they it just pays it pays well so it doesn't have the issue that that you folks have down in Miami where there you know it's a level of depressed wages because there's so much um commercial and retail work and sales based work and and then the housing is so expensive because you have all these foreign investors coming in buying blocks raising the comps and then everybody's you know kind of like stuck on a, a, on an island of of ai hey, can't afford anything
1: exactly and if you look at you know the major sector of our economy is hospitality and tourism yeah. and you know most of the wages in that sector are are low wages you know it's low skill jobs and there was a recently a feature in the Miami Herald <laughs> dealing with transit, which is another issue we face in Miami, because we do not have a robust um, public transit infrastructure. And it was looking at people who work, um, you know, as um, as hotel domestic labor, uh, having to take three buses to work, you know, the amount of time it takes them out of their day. Um, uh, You know, it's a dramatic impact on the quality of life of of the workforce and the hospitality industry. So, um, so we launched a major initiative in affordable housing um, that has a number of different components. One of them is the creation of what's called the Miami Affordability Project, or MAP. And it's an online mapping tool that really helps visualize the landscape of housing affordability in South Florida. So we overlaid census data for the entire county of Miami-Dade, and we've now added Broward and Palm Beach counties as well, um, with housing data um, to basically understand, you know, where is the most dramatic cost burden? Um, It really helps to be able to visualize it, uh, you know, to take large amounts of data and map it um, and then be able to see, you know, wow, actually, there's a lot of assisted housing or public housing in the urban core, but we have significant cost burden to the south and to the west. And those needs aren't necessarily being met um, with the existing uh, subsidized housing infrastructure. So okay. we've worked very closely with a lot of community organizations that are advocates for affordable housing. We also work very closely with Miami Dade County's Department of Public Housing and Community Development because they use this mapping tool for strategic planning, you know, for thinking about where they should invest their resources to make more affordable housing accessible to more people. So we've just completed a study in collaboration with FIU's Metropolitan Center on uh, kind of the dynamics of the housing market in South Florida. And we've estimated that in the next 10 years, there will be the need for about 90,000 units of affordable housing. That's a tremendous number. And, you know, not all of it is going to be met, obviously, through, Um, public and assisted housing. Some of it has to be met through interventions um, in policy uh, in the private market. So we have also created a housing policy toolkit, which again, this is an online tool, just like the map, free and accessible to anyone. Um, And that looks at what are best practices across the country in promoting affordable housing. So everything from inclusionary zoning, to linkage fees, to affordable housing trust funds, to community land trusts. So we look at all of those practices comprehensively, where they've been implemented effectively, but also how they could be implemented in the local market, given our current legislative landscape around housing. Um, we've also added a component of historic preservation because as you know, being from Miami, uh, you know Miami's whole history is built on kind of creating something new all mm-hmm. the time. Mm-hmm. Um, there isn't a real strong sense of wanting to preserve the historic fabric of the built environment like there is in much older cities like DC or Boston or Philadelphia. Um, And so part of our goal in having a historic preservation focus within this affordable housing work is to think really about how we create stable, sustainable neighborhoods. Um, So in a place like Overtown, which was the historic African-American neighborhood, um, people who lived in Overtown helped build Henry Flagler's railroad and hotels. uh, And that community was a thriving, residential and commercial district up through the 1960s when I-95 cut right through the center of it and basically destroyed the heart of the commercial district. It also displaced over 10,000 residents. Um, So part of what we're trying to do is look at these neighborhoods that have a really unique history, think about what strategies we can use to preserve what remains of that history, and also think strategically about how historic preservation can be used as a tool for affordable housing, right? So how can we adaptively reuse existing historic structures for affordable housing. So it's kind of a win-win, right? Because you help preserve the kind of historic feel of a neighborhood, but also create more opportunities for affordable housing. And so that's been a really significant feature of the work that we do. And also a lot of the community connections that we have, not only with advocates for affordable housing, but also with neighborhood based organizations like community development corporations or community redevelopment agencies that are really looking for tools to help create uh you know stable neighborhoods um, address the issue of gentrification that's a really significant factor um, in shaping miami's urban growth and you know really have a tool that's accessible to them um, where they can think about what their priorities are in community development. So that's one of the most significant projects that we're working on now.
0: You know, um, I, <clears throat> when you talk about what happened to Overtown in the 60s, uh, the, I, I remember having read how sim- similar things happened uh, in other large cities across the mm-hmm. country, yep. obviously in areas where you had um, prim- you know, dominated by minorities. Right uh, and for the most part, African American uh, communities. So it's kind of that inconvenient history that you know people sometimes they don't pay attention, they don't want to pay attention to. But at the end of the day, it 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 just demolished local communities and 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 pieces of like of of mainstream cities that that were quite significant and and you know then. They, they're somewhat abandoned for the most part because you have a giant freeway or a highway that run through it now, as opposed to forty, fifty years ago.
1: Absolutely, and that, and you're absolutely right that this was a trend throughout the country. Yeah. It happened uh, in L. A. It, it happened yes, in L. A. Yes, and you know yeah. it was partly the result of the fact that. Um, Urban renewal as um, a strategy to eradicate slum and blight mm-hmm. was happening at the same time that massive highway construction was happening in American cities. And mm-hmm. so oftentimes uh local communities would look at highway construction as a vehicle for addressing blight. Um, and even though within federal housing legislation, Um, and urban renewal legislation, you know, there were supposed to be provisions Mm -hmm. for ensuring um, some neighborhood stability, ensuring that residents wouldn't be too displaced. You know, the reality as it played itself out on the ground was that, um, you know, these kinds of projects really decimated communities of color. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it was a phenomenon that happened all across the country. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, New York is probably one of the most famous examples, but it happened everywhere. And, uh, you know, a lot of those um, residents were permanently displaced. Uh, but, you know, there has been an effort in recent years yeah. to try to regain some of that historic fabric of the community. So, for example, in Overtown, um, a historic church was recently converted into a performing arts center hmm. um, that happened as a result of, you know, local support uh, from community organizations, from the CRA, um, from the commissioner. And, you know, it really is trying to kind of recreate this heyday of Overtown as a cultural hub for Miami. Um, And so, you know, affordable housing is is an important part of that because, uh, you want people to be able to stay in their communities. And when communities start to, you know, turn around, recover, um, see some economic development, you don't want the results of that to be that the people who've been in that neighborhood for generations are then displaced.
0: Yeah, and, and that that impacts to the so-called brain drain, right, uh, right. In, in local communities where, okay, I, I have – I've I you know I've educated myself I've trained myself I have the right skills uh, I have the right attitude but I can't afford housing uh and I'm not getting paid enough well Miami-Dade County is a wonderful place to live Broward County a wonderful place to live but I'm probably going to pack my bags and go somewhere where I can afford a house and an a house with a yard or, or maybe just a townhome that is not in South Florida. And I can save a little, right? I can't be, you know, I'm not going to be continuously running on a, on a, on a zero-sum budget. And, and that impacts to the ability to retain um, top talent or, or just mid to high level talent.
1: Absolutely. And as you mentioned earlier, you know, Miami is a really important hub for innovation and technology.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: there are lots of initiatives to try to grow that sector of the economy, but also connect the economy better to educational opportunities that are available here locally. So Miami-Dade County public school system is the fourth largest school system in the country. And one of the ways that they've uh, really succeeded is by creating lots of different options for students in terms of magnets and academies that are really focused Mm -hmm. Um, and the county has done really well in those areas um, in terms of uh, educational disparities as well so there was a recent article in the new york times about the new world school of the arts you know again one of these public schools uh, that's focused on performing arts and visual arts uh, draw students from all over the county. So it's not based on your zip code. Uh, you simply audition to get in. Um, and so, you know, we have some incredible talents that's emerged from that school. Um, Terrell Alvin McCraney, who was the playwright that the recent Academy Award-winning film Moonlight was based on,
0: mm-hmm. is a graduate
1: of that school. Robert Battle, who is the director of the Elvin Alley Dance Company, came from there. Uh, the music director for the show Hamilton, came from that school. So again, you know, it's really trying to cultivate our local talent at the youngest level, yeah. but also figure out, you know, how can we create pathways for those students that then link up to our institutions of higher learning uh, and that connects then back to the local economy so that we can both attract people from outside of South Florida to bring their skills and talents here, but also cultivate an educated workforce that can succeed here.
0: So, you know, from uh, from an affordable housing uh, standpoint, maybe, <laughs> maybe Lenar can can build a couple thousand units. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, <laughs> um,
1: one of the challenges in South Florida is, you know, unlike. Um, Many other cities that have cost burden issues in housing, um, we don't have um, as robust a policy infrastructure um, in terms of working with developers to make housing more affordable. And so that's partly what um, new legislation around voluntary inclusionary zoning is about. It's really creating these public-private partnerships so that private developers can be incentivized to do more housing affordability. So that could be that they build a market rate mm-hmm. project, but a certain percentage of their units exactly. are affordable. And they could get um, they could get density bonuses for doing that. They could get expedited permitting for doing that. So the real test here, I think, is creating a method by which developers feel that it's in their interest to build more affordable housing
0: and, and how's that how's that going in Miami-Dade county because it's a you know i worked i worked down there in the political circles a long time ago and i kind of understand it quite well it's a difficult place but for in terms of that specific focus area is there, is there some traction
1: well i will say that um over the last couple years the issue of housing has become much more visible in public conversation so it's being taken very seriously at every level, both in terms of businesses, because businesses want to be able to recruit people to work here. They need mm-hmm. to be able to afford to live here. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, you know, from from politicians, from the mayor of the county to um, municipal mayors, recognize that we have a housing crisis at every level. So just not very low income, but also workforce housing. Um, you know, we need to be able to create a housing infrastructure that can house our workforce at every level. And so I think that people are now recognizing that this is a really significant feature um, of what Miami needs to address, just like sea level rise, yep. uh, you know, if we're to remain a really vibrant city.
0: You know, in, in D.C., I know that when, when I bought my home, there was part of uh, and this new development, but there was part of the, develop, the, the development was allocated for low-income housing. Right. Right. And that is very common here. I think it's kind of like the norm for any kind of development where there is a specific a, – a, not a small piece either of each development that's allocated for low income housing. I, you know, hopefully we move in that direction in Miami. I think that, you know, we we can't be so myopic and in, in in our views of of housing and 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 development. We we have to think long term. We have to think of you know this impacts a lot of things and and large builders really need to, you know, become advocates for for this. So hopefully, if any of them are listening. <laughs> uh, they, they can support, they can support it. I know some have really strong ties to certain academic circles and, uh, and they can, you know, they can, uh, they can commit to change. Um, I know you mentioned some tools, some of the housing, um, tools that you've developed in collaboration with FIU and other groups. Where can people find those? Are, are right, some, so- are some online?
1: Yes, um, they're all online. Um, uh, The URL is miami.edu slash affordable housing. And so that will take you to the landing page, both for the affordable housing mapping tool, as well as for a housing policy timeline that basically uses primary source documents and photographs to trace the whole history of housing policy in Miami from the 1920s to the present. Um, And then we're just completing the policy toolkit now. So that part isn't actually available online yet, but will be within the next month. And that's where we're really looking at all of these best practices nationally, and then talking about specific targeted strategies for implementing them locally in Dade County, but also um, even at the neighborhood level, right? So a strategy that might work in, say, Little Havana, would be different from a strategy for Wynwood. And so we want to look at just the different dynamics of neighborhoods to understand and advocate for the best strategy for that particular community.
0: Now, um, you know, we talked about your mission. We've spoken about... um You know, a lot of things that you've been working on that you want to work on some of the challenges. But let's talk let's talk specifically about you and what are some of your challenges in conducting this type of work and some of the challenges that the university faces. And then in closing, if you can share with us ways to to get involved, ways to do something and to make an impact and to feel good about yourself.
1: Sure. Um, Well, you know, one of the challenges of doing community based work at a university is that universities have a long history of um, either ignoring the communities that surround them or actually not being very good neighbors. So, um, you know, there's a a long history of places like Columbia in New York or University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia or University of Chicago on the south side of Chicago, you know, where universities really saw themselves as um, kind of having an embattled relationship with neighborhoods and even engaging in, you know, real estate practices um, that were detrimental to uh, some of their neighbors. And. Um, Or, you know, having universities use communities as um, study areas, right? So Mm -hmm. researchers might come in, um, you know, get a lot of information from uh, residents and then leave. And they've published their research paper, but, you know, the community doesn't see a benefit. And so really over the last decade or so, universities have dramatically kind of flipped their model of how they relate um, to their surrounding communities. And I'd say the best example of this is the Netter Center for Community Partnerships at the University of Pennsylvania, where they've really taken a kind of robust approach to understanding their position within West Philadelphia Mm -hmm. and trying to utilize their resources to work in collaboration with that neighborhood. And so offices like mine really use that as a model um, because they've been doing it for a long time, uh, about 25 years. And so, you know, we really want to think strategically about how we can truly promote a culture of collaboration and an ethic of reciprocity where equity and inclusion are sort of the founding principles of anything that we do with um, community organizations so that you know, community members really see the university as a true partner um, and that the dialogue goes both ways and that ideas for projects emanate directly from the community and are not kind of dictated by, you know, a researcher's particular agenda. So so that's one challenge, really, is kind of building that neighborhood trust, right, where yeah. um, we have to kind of undo, you know, decades of mistrust of, mm-hmm. of universities. Um, And another challenge is really within the culture of institutions of higher learning themselves, uh, because the way we reward faculty um, and the way institutions have been structured over the last 50 years or so is to promote really highly specialized knowledge, right? And so when you do publications, you publish in the most prestigious journal in your field, and that's really important. Um, But we also want to be um, more open to recognizing other forms of publicly engaged scholarship, right? So that it might be equally legitimate to create a um, white paper for a community organization that's addressing homeless issues as it is to publish in the most prestigious journal in your field. So um, particularly research universities are uh, a little bit behind on that in terms of the faculty reward structure um, and how we count. Um, what is legitimate forms of scholarship and pedagogy? Um, but there are a number of organizations across the country um, Campus Compact, Imagining America, the American Association of colleges and universities that are really striving to make engagement a bedrock of higher education and to kind of rethink the reward structure and the way in which we recognize faculty work. Um, So that's a really important movement that we are part of here at the University of Miami. Uh, In 2015, we received recognition from the Carnegie Foundation as a community-engaged university. Um, so that's a you know tremendous um, accolade for the university. Mm-hmm. And we continue to work in every level, whether it's through procurement practices or how we think about the relationship between the university's health dr- district and its surrounding communities, where we can really truly be a kind of community partner that works collaboratively.
0: Yeah, I mean, it, it, when you go to Miami, you see the, the UM symbol pretty much everywhere across the city, <laughs> and people are very proud of it, and people are very proud of the impact that it has, on, uh, you know, on the community. And you can really, you're, you're, I'm beginning to to really see, and obviously, it's it's clear that your office, especially since 2011, is creating a significant impact where, you know, people are talking about UM across the community in in a really really positive light right um so you know credit to you uh that's not common for a lot of other universities across the country where they're you know solely focused on their endeavors on their mission on their goals on their publications on their research but not so much on this kind of like joint research, which is kind of like joint custody. And then universities get really prickly, really nervous about that. But then they have no issue in asking you for for to take the shirt off your back. Uh, which is to me it's ridiculous. You know uh, it's 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 beyond but anyways, um I you know this your mission is a fascinating one. What you do is incredibly important and and critical to to the community, and to a metropolitan area that has, what, close to like 5 million, something like that?
1: A little um, over three, yeah. A little yeah. Yeah. But over if three. You include, like... if you include Broward and Palm Beach, yeah. Yeah,
0: yeah. Broward and Palm Beach. I mean, I include I include yeah. kind of like that, that tri-county yep. Yep. Uh, area. Uh, it's fascinating. Now, before be, before you go, um, I know you're going on sabbatical. You're going to do something pretty uh, interesting and fun. Why don't we talk about that for a second?
1: Sure so um so i 'm going to be on sabbatical for this academic year and i'm writing a book on the environmental and architectural history of South Florida uh, uh, and so thinking about um, you know how basically South Florida was created with this idea of uh, first, you know, completely transforming the natu- the natural landscape by draining the Everglades. Um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and now yeah. we're paying billions of dollars to restore the Everglades yep. a century later. Um, uh, but also, you know, what did it mean for people to think about, you know, South Florida as a place of travel and tourism, but also permanent settlement? And, you know, they're really just kind of fascinating examples of, Uh, You know, from Miami Beach to Coral Gables to a town called Opalaka, which is designed around an Arabian theme. Um, You know, it's really it was, you know, South Florida was really like Disney World before there was a Disney World um, with different kind of themed ideas about how to create cities um, it's really fascinating in terms of the rhetoric of both trying to create a kind of old world aesthetic in places like Vizcaya, which was the industrialist James Deering's winter home, uh, but also adapted to a subtropical landscape. Um, and also this idea of kind of constantly rebuilding and reshaping the natural environment. So those are some of the issues that I'll be looking at.
0: Well, that's fascinating. You know, um... One of my dearest friends his his mom is very much involved in historic preservation her name's Dolly McIntyre.
1: Oh, I know her very well. <laughs> you, know, you know Dolly? I okay. Do. Yeah,
0: so her son Bill and I have been friends since oh boy, let's say we were 10. Uh huh. Uh, something like that. We've been, I mean, r- best friends. Uh, wow. For, for, yeah, yeah, for a very, very, very long time. So Dolly has been very passionate about this. Absolutely. Uh, I mean,
1: she's one of the leading people who spearheaded preservation efforts in Miami.
0: Yeah. Do you know her, uh, her daughter Sheffield? Maybe. Maybe. maybe I do no. not. I do okay, not. Okay. Yeah. She's wonderful. Uh, wonderful people. So yeah, Dolly. uh is actually from D.C.
1: Oh, I didn't know that.
0: Yeah, Dolly's from D.C. She. Uh, she grew up in D.C. And then, um, where did she go to school? Did she go to UM? She, I think. Th- I
1: think she might have, but I'm not a hundred. I think she. Sure. I
0: know. I think she went to UM, and she was the homecoming queen.
1: Oh my goodness.
0: Yeah, she went to UM. She was the homecoming queen, and then uh, she met um, Bill's dad, uh, Sandy McIntyre, um, down in Miami. He was this bachelor, and uh, and he has this home on on South Bayshore Drive. It's beautiful, beautiful. Um, Oh man. And yeah, I've, so Dolly's known me since I was 11. How funny. So the next time you see Dolly, mention, uh, mention my sure name will. and she's probably going to roll her eyes and go, my God, that kid was a, just a crazy nut, uh, <laughs> back in the day. So, well, uh, Robin, this has been wonderful. Um, always love talking to you. I, I wish you the very best in your sabbatical and, uh, your next project, uh, for those that, um, that took the time to listen to this podcast, please make sure to leave a review uh, after you're done listening, be it on uh, on Google Play, on Stitcher, or on your Apple Podcast app. It only takes a minute, and it really helps us spread the word about our mission, our topics, and our uh, guests. With that, have a great weekend, everyone. And Robin, thank you very much for uh, joining us.
1: Thank you so much.